Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the award-winning Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by political reporters Callum Ross and Adele Merson to catch up on the latest goings-on in and around Holyrood and our communities. We will of course talk about the latest twists in the SNP leadership campaign, we'll catch up with the latest resignation, recording this one day after John Swinney decided to call it a day as Deputy First Minister. He follows Nicola Sturgeon out of the ministerial tower doors in a few weeks. We'll see what the next First Ministers might be up to on the campaign trail too. And while this is all happening around us, big decisions are still being made. It's shocking actually to see side by side how the machine of government at all levels is carrying on while it looks sometimes like no one is actually at the controls. In the past few days, Councils all over Scotland have been setting their budgets for the year ahead. We'll pick out a few as examples of just how chronic the financial mess is uh, we're, um, that we're all currently experiencing at the moment. One specific example, which you may have heard about recently, affects a music scheme for children. The one we're, we're looking at here is Big Noise Douglas, part of the Systema model, which is credited with helping young people getting a taste for music in poorer or disadvantaged communities. Adele Merson spoke with Andy Thorne, the man behind the Dundee Big Noise Project in Douglas, which is an area of the city with high levels of deprivation. She started by asking how a big cut in Dundee's budget will affect the future of his project. I mean, I think what to first, it was a a huge uh, shock to us. Um, It's something that we weren't expecting. Um, We've been working, you know, uh, very, very closely in partnership with the council for just over five years years now. Um, we're very happy with how the programme is uh, is running and how it's developing and um, we've had independent evaluation as well to, to show that it is on the right path. Um, so we were very shocked to, to hear that that was happening. Um, we appreciate, you know, that the council had to make tough choices and that, you know, um, we're, we're in pretty um, extraordinary times but um, we're talking about you know children and and young people and their parents and carers and this is a community that needs this the most and I think when we're making tough choices as a society it's important that we protect those that you know that have the greatest need. Um, We target our our work in in areas where we we feel it does the most good so I think we were really shocked by that. In terms of next steps we're a really long-term program you know so um, we are there for children from there when they're very young just a few weeks old or at the early part of school right up into high school all the way through high school and then beyond into their adult lives and we've always said to the the people here in this community that we're here for the long term. We made that uh, that long-term promise to the community along with uh, the, the council but we won't break our promise to the community so um, it's going to be much more challenging to you know raise funds as a charity so Hestema is the charity that runs the big noise centres so we didn't just get funding from the council in fact for the first uh, four years of the programme another charity called um, Optimistic Sound uh, raised most of the funds to run the programme there so actually for the first four years um, the council were you know, not having to um, to pay for most of the programme. So actually, as a charity, our charity, Systema and Optimistic have actually been bringing a huge amount of money into this part of the city. So we've been, you know, bringing money into Dundee. Uh, over £1 million has kind of come into this city. So as I said, we've made a promise to the, the Douglas community, to the children and, and young people that... We're here for the very long term and that won't change. So we're going to um, carry on. We're going to you know, um, keep looking to 
raise their own funds and to support the work of the of the program. Will the services you provide inevitably sort of have to be scaled back a degree? I think it's impossible to see that that that, that won't happen. So we had asked um, Dundee City Council for three hundred thousand pounds, which was actually about half of what um, uh, what they'd originally agreed to to pay. Um, so we you know knew that we were in these tough tough times so we'd um i guess try to help the council by bringing our offer right down and you know um that money is matched by money that we as a charity are are bringing to but yeah um, i think we will have if there's less um money in the budget then obviously we we won't be able to run all the um strands of the program that we'd had planned to do like i said i think the the thing that we will do and the thing that we've always done is is we'll talk to the you know children and young people the parents and carers the local community you know ask them what's important to them and we'll tailor the the program around that and we'll just do our best to i guess impactful work and you know try and focus on the impacts as well and have you heard much from kids parents the wider community you know is there a lot of anger or upset there i'd say if there was one positive about this whole situation it's that the community really came together um they wrote to their um elected members the local councillors they signed a petition i think over uh, over one and a half thousand people signed a petition in fact it's probably above that now um quite a few um people have said they emailed their local councillors and they said you know i spoke about from their personal experience what this means to them the community is feeling quite angry quite upset i think the real thing that they feel is they've been kind of let down by the way the council works so lots of people um, uh, emailed their councillors um some people got a kind of stock answer um very much a kind of a non-personalized cut and paste response and actually since the cut was was confirmed um i don't think any of the councillors have kind of got back to the community to explain why that happened i think we were quite disappointed as a as a team as a charity but also i know that being a parents case were were upset that um, they weren't asked about this, they weren't consulted about this at all. And um, I think one of the things that has been hardest for the members of the community is that they felt like they were coming together, they were having a voice. They did actually invite the uh, the, the, the local councillors to come to Douglas and actually have a chat with them, have a conversation. And they did, didn't come to that, they didn't um, respond. Two of our, our parents actually spoke in the council meeting um and it, it was an, an incredibly i think powerful um you know words that they were speaking and it felt like the councillors you know didn't take that on board um i think that's hard because you know you would hope that um we're trying to show the community that they have a, a voice they have power in this and it, it's felt like in this particular instance that hasn't happened they came t- together they wrote they spoke in in the meeting and yeah councillors didn't hear their thoughts or their views there were statements certainly made by Aberdeen councillors which suggested they felt there wasn't the evidence that big noise makes, a, I think it was a, the quote was a sustainable, measurable difference. What do you make of that? Do you think that, um, you know, is unfair on, on the team up in Aberdeen? Yeah, I think it, it's incredibly unfair and actually not based on, you know, hard facts. So as a charity um, over the over the years, um, we've been working with external partners. So Glasgow Centre for for Population Health has been working with us over the long term. They're, um, uh, they're completely independent of us, so they're doing their, their own work. And they see clear impacts of, of, of the work. It felt like, um, you know, councils have been able to, I guess, write their own 
report that's not external, it's not independent, um, that feels, yeah, that I guess there's a power imbalance there, which is, you know, we are, uh, as a charity, we are we are using, um, you know, highly respected independent sources to evaluate our, our work and to develop and, and grow. But it felt like both uh, Aberdeen and Dundee councils have not had to go through that process and they've, you know, written their own statements based on, I think, not on kind of hard facts as well. I think in in both cases, they haven't spoken to the local community as well. So I think how do you evaluate a programme without talking to the people that are there that are, you know, directly impacted by that? Um, I think that's 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 been one of the, the tough things. Um, I would say as well that... Um, that in both cases, you know, we are partnering with the councils, with our local councils. So we meet with them. Um, and this didn't come up in advance. I think that's, uh, I know from my colleagues up in Aberdeen, you know, they, they meet every three months. And the general, um, you know, the tone of the conversations has been very positive. Both cities have been extremely proud to to host a Big Noise programme and to be part of that journey, you know, um, councillors and council officers have attended concerts you know they've spoken there they've been very proud of the work um and to to turn around on that so quickly is is really hard and actually um i think my my personal worry i guess is that they've had to make a tough choice to make cuts and they've tried to justify that that cut you know by making uh, um unfounded i think often comments or you know not not given the, the whole picture. And year on year, it certainly feels like cultural organisations more widely across Scotland have to face this, you know, they have to make this case that funding should continue for their programmes. Do you get frustrated at all that culture is often seen as the first place where savings are made? Yeah, I mean, I completely um, understand that councils are having to make really tough choices. But I, yeah, I, I agree. I think there's there's two areas of concern. Yeah, one is that you know culture, the arts generally does seem to be where cuts happen at first. And actually, um, cuts to the arts, you know, it's not you take away this kind of money and then you put it back in a few years. It doesn't really work like that. Um, generations of our kids might have you know less access to the arts now. And I think you know you can't you can't kind of go back two or three years later and mend that problem um i think you know, society is about more than providing the kind of the, those basic services we obviously have to do that and you know people have to be healthy and have enough to eat and be in a you know a safe home but it's the arts where we we can escape and we can aspire for more although we are an arts organization you know, um, um, uh, music is just the tool so actually um for us as a charity we've found incredibly talented you know children and young people in each place that, that we've we've worked in. In fact, um, from the oldest centre in Smelling, um, some of the young people have gone on to do music, um, which is great. But actually, young people that have gone on to do, you know, IT, be a plumber, be a hairdresser, that's the same achievement. If that's if if it's that's you know a good outcome and a good journey for that young person, then that's great. I think arts and music is a way that some kids, you know, that's that's the part of their school day when they feel like it's going well that's the place that they feel safe and they feel happy and and i think we need to be finding ways for our children and 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 young people to to find that thing that they do that you know really makes them thrive and feel safe and happy could be 
could be music, could be sport, could be drama. But if you take these things away, then, you know, that high school experience for that that, that, that young person might not be as good. And, you know, I, I think there's a real risk there. Um, and I think the other area of challenge for us, you know, is that um, I worry that these cuts disproportionately affect children and young people in their communities that need the most help and need the most support. Um, equality and, and equity are two different things we know that you know there is an attainment gap in Scotland and um uh, children and 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 young people they're not starting from the same point you know so we do need to target those kids that that um, have the most to gain from programs like ours and I do think that um I think that equality v equity thing does sometimes get completely lost you know um so I think as a society we need to be comfortable with with the fact that we might need to put more uh, resource, money, time, effort into helping kids that you know need that extra bit of support, that extra push, so that their 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 peers that live you know in a part of the city a few miles away but have a very different experience of life, you know, I, I think that's really key. And I think as a society, if we're not willing to support those that that need to support the most, then we've done something wrong. That was uh, Adele Merson speaking with Andy Thorne there, and we'll return to that shortly. Um, it's just one example. Everywhere is getting it pretty tough at the moment. A council in Wales just set a 9.9% increase in council tax. Croydon in London just refused uh, proposals in a vote to shove it up by an amazing 15%. The authority there is effectively bankrupt. So what is happening in our patch here? We'd start in Dundee, where we just heard firsthand how one group is in retreat despite campaigns to save it. Uh, taxes going up 4.75% in Dundee from April. Lockheed is getting hit hardest with a cut to regeneration funding, again, an area with, with specific needs. Buses are going to be removed and some services, bin collection charges will go up. I mean, we're talking about Dundee here, but this applies pretty much in wherever you're listening, something will be happening in a similar way. So let's go back to that interview. Adele, it seems it is another case of councillors having to cut where it just seems easy. Yeah, I think I obviously asked Andy in the interview about the fact that culture is often the, the first thing that councillors seem to go to when they're looking at what to cut. I mean, to an extent, you can understand that kind of core crucial services like health and education are always the ones that are for good reason I guess protected but it must be frustrating for cultural organizations because I think year on year you know even if they survive one year it comes round to another you know nine ten months and they begin to start thinking what's going to happen to them next year because they are just kind of first in line when it comes to where the cuts will fall and I think it's important with you know, there's more to <laughs> there's more to life. I think cultural culture is often seen as like this nice to have thing, but really there's more to life than just providing core services. And as a society, especially when we're paying increasing council tax bills, I think we'd like to see a bit more for the money we're putting in. But um, and then with culture, it's often the case that you might not immediately get. I guess uh, it takes years and years, sometimes ten years, to see the benefit of some cultural programs, for example, because. The impact is more in the future with, you know, what impact will this have on children? It's maybe quite hard to measure that, you know, in the first few years, whereas it's got quite a long term impact. So but it's difficult for everyone, as you said there, it's all across the UK that these that these tricky decisions are being made. You mentioned education and health in those um, examples as well. 
and and culture, of course, being connected because we look elsewhere, like Aberdeen, for example, which we can turn to a bit more in detail. Swimming pools, that's health. There's swimming pools and the leisure centre getting chopped. Education, libraries, you know, there's at-risk libraries there. What What's going on in, in Aberdeen? Because there's been quite a big, we, we've covered it in, in depth at the Press and Journal, which you can, of course, go back and, and check online and in print. But there's, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, controversial decisions being made there as well to balance the books. Yeah, there's been some real sort of headlines or decisions made, such as to close the Beach Leisure Centre, which to to anyone that's... Uh, I'm from Aberdeen, and to anyone that's from Aberdeen, it's seen as this kind of iconic child... You know, you've got all these childhood memories from the Beach Leisure Centre. I noticed a lot of people tweeting and things that that's where they learned to swim. Uh, it's got a gym attached to it um, and just and used to be a good place to go. So that's a really high profile kind of decision. And then they are also closing Bucksburn Pool. So again, a community has just lost a kind of exercise facility that they can use and they're getting told they can go to another pool. But whether there's going to be space for all these people, I don't entirely know. Um, they have plans to I think their idea is that this beach leisure centre was past its life anyway and that they'll they'll flatten it and then they'll get some kind of new facility as part of the beach master plan, which we've covered in depth in the Press and Journal. But who knows, you know, where the cash is coming for all these these big projects. Yeah, the master plan's not cheap at all by any stretch of the imagination. I was also pretty um, shocked at the kind of cavalier term about this beach leisure centre being, well, everyone knew it was coming to the end of its lifespan anyway. I was 11 when it was built. <laughs> it's like... I, I I don't consider myself particularly near the end of my lifespan. And I've got good memories too, like you were saying, of going there and doing kind of tennis and swimming and all sorts of stuff. The libraries, there's six libraries to close, including in some of the more deprived areas. And well, I'm a very big bookworm, so that news really hurt me because I have, again, just the memories that you have as a child and as an adult even um, of going along to I often think the library is probably the reason why I'm in the job I'm in because I originally want to be an author and then realised you don't really just become an author too easily. So kind of eventually went into wanting to be a journalist and that's all because I started to go there as a two-year-old and my mum said I would pick up the books and I couldn't necessarily read them but I would read out my own stories and it's all these kind of memories that you just think of kids today missing out on. And when it comes to libraries as well, I mean, they aren't just for reading, as strange as that might sound, you know, you've got your internet access, Wi-Fi. A lot of them are used as these warm hubs for people to go and get a heat. They've got things like you can get period products, newspapers. I, I think, you know, it's so rare now that you have a place that you can go where you don't need to buy, you know, a four pound drink and a cake or something and you, you don't need to have an excuse for being there. You can just turn up and go. And I think that's, I mean, the council would argue that, I think they are arguing that people are going less and so, you know, changing habits of reading and things like that. But it's still the case that a lot of communities might not have access to things like, well, they won't have access to things like iPads and laptops. And, and so that might be their only option to actually pick up some books. It's, it's thoroughly depressing. It's thoroughly depressing. It is. It is, Adele. <laughs> um and then while they're making all these cuts to services, I mean, we are focusing a lot more on the culture part here, but it's everywhere, let's just say, and simple things. Um, we're talking about core services, but bus buses as well. There's buses getting axed all over the place that connect communities to other communities and the city centres or more rural um, communities which are left high and dry. You've got to get a car, things like that. I mean, 
more on that later when we turn to the SNP leadership. But it's, there's a blame game when it comes to then having to excuse where the, the axe is falling, Callum. How how do the different levels of government fit into this blame game pattern now? Is, is anyone actually to blame? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to find the exact person who's to blame, but I would be... I kind of thought, oh, Calm's actually going to name someone. This is going to be great. <laughs> to think about it. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go there, Andy, but you're right. I mean, there's a kind of cycle now. We see this every year, isn't there? Um, Westminster government sets its budget, and it normally says this budget's going to give the Scottish Parliament, Scottish government, hundreds of millions of pounds more funding. And then the Scottish government comes back and says, actually, this is a massive real terms cut in our budget. And then there's a big row about that. And then Scottish government sets its budget and it says it's giving a load of more money to councils. And then COSLA comes back and says, actually, this is a, a huge cut in our budget. And there, there's a big row. Really, the biggest, the kind of hardest decisions, though, are, are the ones that are passed down to the councils. They're the ones really on the front lines. They're the ones that have to, have to uh, in most instances, actually kind of stop stop services and stop um, uh you know, real, really important uh, services, as we've discussed. And just incidentally, when you were talking about the Beach Leisure Centre, I was remembering that I, I was a council reporter in Aberdeen 15 years ago when they closed the Bon Accord Baths. And I think, Adele, Adele, keep me right, I think that's still empty today, that site. Certainly was um, a couple of years ago. The difference this year, I guess, is the cost of living, well, inflation and the cost of living crisis. Um, you know, inflation's meant... Um, uh, obviously, huge pressure on household bills, but also on kind of council bills and the cost of living crisis, which is obviously connected to that. I know that from speaking to council leaders that they've been really kind of conscious that they didn't want to increase council tax too much to make kind of exacerbate that situation. I know you've mentioned the likes of Croydon and also Orkney. I think Orkney has gone up by by ten percent, but most most councils kind of going for kind of around the four four uh five percent uh uh which is obviously significantly below inflation but no i'm, I'm sorry i'm not gonna i'm not gonna um uh, pinpoint uh blame today andy but um oh all right, uh, then. Okay. <laughs> all right well from that should we move seamlessly into a man who's been in control of scotland's purse strings for some time now none other than the um, Deputy First Minister and Interim Finance Secretary, John Swinney. Uh, now, there's a man who has been around um, when it comes to the annual circus sometimes of, of the, the negotiations with councils over how much money they should be getting from government. Um, and he, of course, decided to call it a day yesterday. We're recording this not that long after... Um, yesterday afternoon where he was um, surprised everyone there was an exchange of letters done in the usual way where he says he's decided to pack it in and Nicola Sturgeon says some very lovely things about him um, he's going to stay in post until Nicola Sturgeon herself formally steps down which is towards the end of March and then all change what's what's going to happen here I mean John Swinney has um, he's the longest serving Deputy First Minister he's been in government for a very very long time part of the 2007 SNP administration intake and he's been there ever since and he was finance secretary rightly up to the referendum in 2014. Callum you, you talked about your your kind of history as council reporting as well you know all the step of the way and and in this job and covering um, the podcast week to week John Swinney's been an ever-present character and it's going to be some some boots to fill there. Absolutely I mean just just thinking about what you're saying there and I think with with Nicola Sturgeon and John Swinney going certainly in, in the current cabinet there'll be no one left from the 2007 cabinet 
except for uh, I think Richard Lockhead was actually environment minister. He's he's back as a, a minister just now, isn't he? But that you know that that just shows you we're now at a point where where there'll be um, I maybe maybe corrected about that, but I think we're pretty much getting to the point where there'll be no one no one left. Um, uh, and obviously, whoever becomes first minister will probably um, appoint their their own cabinet. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a big moment. He's been a fairly kind of dependable figure, hasn't he? The phrase is safe pair of hands although there have been kind of moments um um especially in the last few years i think when the, when he was education secretary the kind of uh the whole crisis over over exam marks and 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 you know the way way schools were being handled during the the pandemic he also came in, came for under a bit of pressure i seem to remember during the the salmon inquiry when he was he was kind of the one having to explain why why documents weren't being handed over uh, and and things like that but it's never really felt like he was he was on the brink at any point. He, 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 I think Nicola Sturgeon kind of made him COVID recovery minister after, uh, or secretary after education. Obviously, he's filled, been filling in for where Kate Forbes kind of, um, you know, uh, coming full circle from his from his first job back in two thousand seven. And of course, you mentioned Kate Kate Forbes there, and she is one of the three candidates in the SNP who want to be the next first minister. And as you said, she was finance secretary and handed the reins back to John. Swinney when she went off on maternity leave. She's cutting that short now in order to stand in this race for First Minister. Last time that we had a chat here, we were coming to the end of a pretty chaotic week for Kate. Go back and listen to um, our previous episode for, for a lot more on that, the chat about her, the role her Christian faith plays in her kind of find, founding political ideologies and how it might affect her decision making was, was all that people were talking about. But She's not gone away. She's um, looking like she's still perhaps got the edge when it comes to supporters. Adele, have you been? You've been looking at what Kate's been, Kate Forbes has been up to recently. Do you detect the campaign has been knocked off course at all by last week's events, or is she back on the, the straight and narrow? Yeah, I mean, I think compared to to last week, things have. I wouldn't say they've fully turned around at all and certainly for people who, though many people who completely, well, for good reason not have forgotten some of her, the things that she said last week, but I think there definitely has been a kind of pivot this week towards much more policy-led obviously she's on the campaign trail, so there's been a number of different stops and there's there's a lot more policy coming out, I think obviously the first week was the airing of what her personal views are and trying to get to the bottom of what that is and now she I'm sure it's a deliberate strategy is trying to focus it on what her plan is for various policies. I mean, a couple that are particularly relevant for for some of the areas we represent would be oil and gas. There was a she did a sort of Zoom event with um, a think tank and she talked there about how she wanted in, an independent Scotland to have a Norway style oil fund and made some statements around how we shouldn't throw the fossil fuels sector to the winds. And then we've had uh, just in the last hour statements around A9 dueling. She wants to see sort of revised strategy and time skills coming forward by June, I think it was. So yeah, she's definitely repositioned things this week towards to make it more of a of a policy focus and away from some of her views. Mm-hmm. Hamza Yousaf is the perhaps the the bookie's favourite though, and he also has the lion's share of the the frontline political endorsement. Although we also report this morning how Kate Forbes has um, got another one in her neck of the woods from former government minister Fergus Ewing, who I guess really likes what she has to say about things like the A9. Callum Hamza Yousaf, as we speak, is actually speaking to one of our colleagues, Rachel Amory, for future stories. He's in 
Arbroath as we speak, um, talking about independence next to the declaration of uh, of Arbroath statue. What's 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 the what's the prospects for Hamza at the moment? Do you think, Calm? I think you're right that a lot of people it kind of feels like Kate Forbes is a slight edge at the moment. But I mean, there's things to consider. Um, you know, we've seen some polling, but I think I'm right in saying that a lot of the polling has been of SNP voters and it's obviously going to be members that um, uh, make the decision. The SNP membership kind of exploded after or around the kind of independence referendum and it was a, a lot of kind of progressive people joining the party, kind of younger people, probably central belt, more a bit more left wing than than the party used to be. We touched we touched on this uh, last week. Kate Forbes obviously been seen as a bit more kind of pro business and and obviously socially conservative so i wonder if that could count against her uh in the end especially when with hamza having the backing of the likes of nicholas sturgeon it's also, also got to be said he's not had any huge blunders yet i mean there's obviously been questions about his um why he missed a vote on on equal marriage but um i think i think his camp will be quietly confident at this stage that that, that things are you know he's he's definitely well in the race and and possibly um Possibly, like you said, the the bookie's favourite at the moment. You mentioned the the equal marriage thing there. That's that's a, a complicated story in the background. Really, it's it's quite chewy to get to. But I mean, it's brought some big hitters back out. Alex Salmond was on the the news channels last night, um, effectively pouring a bit more fuel on that particular fire, suggesting that it was his assumption that um, it was kind of engineered that Hamza Yousaf would try to make sure he couldn't be there for the, the final vote, suggesting that there was a lot of pressure from um, religious community on him to stay away from that vote. So by no means is the the impact of faith and politics restricted to, to Kate Forbes. Um, it would be very intriguing to see if that particular angle that some of Hamza Yousaf's rivals seem to be really trying to prize away at will actually cut through in any meaningful way. Um, but talking of Alex Salmond brings us around to the final candidate, Ash Regan, um, who people you know, talk about these people being on the same kind of wing um, of the party. Ash Regan, to be fair, she wasn't even featuring in uh, Abuki's odds that I was looking at yesterday. Um, it was just the, the the two principal rivals, Hamza Youssef and Kate Forbes, that looked like they were even being considered as, as viable. Uh, Adele, uh, Ash Regan, she's also been up in the Northeast um, talking about oil and gas. Has she got a hope in hell? Or, I mean, is she there to make the numbers? What's she going to have? What's she going to have to do next to, to to make any impact in the in the race? No, I think she's she's very much regarded as the the outsider of the three and um, in terms of people that are backing her. Unless I'm mistaken, I can only think of, I think, Joanna Cherry, the MP, is uh, supporting her, but I'm struggling to think of anyone else unless I'm mistaken. So she's, I guess, at a disadvantage that she's not got those kind of high profile backers that some of the other candidates, that the other two candidates have. Um, yeah, she was up in the northeast and seems to be taking a, a different sort of um, approach to her to her bid. She said that Sturgeon's government had had failed the north and northeast, which is obviously at the same time wanting people to sort of vote for her in the future under that party banner. So she, she's clearly trying to position herself as, you know, she showed her, I guess, her independent mind when she decided to vote against gender reform and therefore lose her position as community safety minister. And I think she's she's continuing with that kind of strategy of that she's not afraid to to kind of call out the government for some of the mistakes they might have made. In terms of going forward, I, I don't quite know whether she will just kind of continue 
along that um that sort of strategy or not but it, it's hard to see at this stage now how how she could compete with either Kate or Hamza well there'll be a lot more opportunities to um hear from them firsthand and of course the the candidates are now taking part in their own hustings um debates with SNP members which um after a little bit of a stushy are being opened to more press uh, access and being live streamed and stuff like that because let's not forget just like when the conservatives had their party contest only a very small number of people are going to decide who is going to be in charge of the scottish government um, in a few short weeks but that's for another time so thank you for listening this week thanks to calm ross adele merson guest andy thorne producer caroline white and of course to you for listening we'll be back next week with more but until then pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.